Thanks for downloading this Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. For more information on the centre, go to ucd.ie forward slash history forward slash chomi. In this episode, a recording from the medical training, student experience and the transmission of knowledge circa 1800 to 2014 symposium, which took place in the UCD Humanities Institute in October 2014. The symposium was organised by Laura Kelly of University College Dublin and was generously supported by the Irish Research Council and the Wellcome Trust. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this episode, a recording from Panel 4, Medical Education in Colonial Contexts. The paper, Lady Dufferin's Fund and Medical Training for Women Educated in Colonial India, 1885-1920, to was given by Gillian McClelland of Queen's University, Belfast. Uh, a centrepiece of colonial philanthropic work was the Countess of Dufferin's National Association for Supplying Medical Aid to the Women of India. And this was a non-denominational organisation aimed at relieving sick Indian women who, for religious and cultural reasons, would die rather than consult medical men. Uh, the plight of Indian women had been brought to the attention of Queen Victoria, who, in 1885, asked the new vice of India, Harriet Dufferin, to explore this issue. The consequence was the establishment of Lady Dufferin's Fund, financed both by the UK Central Committee and various Indian branches. Uh, the aims of the fund were to finance uh, the building and running of lying-in hospitals in India, to train local women in midwifery, and to provide scholarships for women training to be doctors and planning to go out to India. Uh, this is the one we're most interested in. Provide bursaries to facilitate medical education in Britain and Ireland for women qualified as medical practitioners from Indian medical schools such as Madras, Agra, Lahore, the Punjab and Calcutta. So it's this east to west migration of women uh, for further medical qualifications that I'm going to focus on today. Historians, with the exception of Stompra Lahiri and uh, Geraldine Forbes, have overlooked the experience of Eastern women undertaking British medical training. And even they have not consulted the, the, the documents we're about to examine. Now, these documents are 23 application forms filled in by applicants seeking bursaries to make the journey to the UK. And there are also letters from some of the Eastern migrants to Lady Dufferin. Uh, this material is lodged in the Dufferin Papers at Peroni. Uh, the application forms they also they provided not only personal facts, but more interestingly, uh, their Indian qualifications and microscopic detail of their training and careers prior to their arrival in the UK. I have this in this massive Excel spreadsheet, which I couldn't put up there, I'm afraid. Uh, if anybody wants to see it. Uh, The letters complement the application forms, providing us with the process by which women were chosen uh, for the coveted British training and an opportunity to reconstruct their experiences. Furthermore, they give us great insight into colonial attitudes. Uh, What percentage we have of the total number of application forms submitted, we do not know. However, a clue that we may have a sizable proportion lies in a letter written to the BMJ in 1908 by Catherine Vaughan, MB of London, in which she asserted that there are only 48 fully qualified medical women working under the fund. Two are counted twice as they moved. Three have retired, leaving us with only 43, out of whom only 11 have university degrees. 
so as you can see, uh, an, an enormous amount of material here. So unfortunately, every application form does not carry full information. Uh, it does on the first section, but not of all the, the lectures that it's studied. Unfortunately, we only have nine with full data. Uh, so, from 1900 to 1914, there were up to seven scholarships available each year to candidates on condition that they were natives or residents of India, that they must be recommended to the UK branch by the Central Committee, that they must be women who had already had experience of practical medical work in India, and not to be young students. Uh, strictly for ladies, always ladies, <laughs> uh, who have already practised in India, such as assistant surgeons and who wish to go again home uh, to study for a higher qualification. The word home is used even by those Anglo-Indians who had lived in India all of their lives. They must not remain in Europe for more than two years. That they may arrange to study in London, Edinburgh, Glasgow or Dublin. They were expected to qualify for the English Med Medical Register and it was expected that they would work for the Dufferin Hospitals for five years on return to India. Okay. So this next slide shows us the number of applicants that we have a good amount of data on. Uh, the time frame uh, spans some 17 years. Some years have no applications at all. But of course, as we don't know for certain this is all of them, it could be, we can't really speculate on this pattern. Uh, as you can see, 1899 must be the most popular year. The migrant doctors were aged, interesting, from 17 to 42. The majority fell into the aged 20 to 29 age group. Uh, and the 42-year-old was Amelia Ramsbottom, a Eurasian woman. The provincial bench had, quote, expressed doubt as to her ability at her time of life to sustain the prescribed course. Very scary. Uh, as time progresses, the 42, 42 seems young to me, that's for sure. Uh, she had studied in the Madras Medical School and had been a resident medical officer in a military orphan asylum from 1884 uh, to 86. Uh, she later practised for 14 years in the Lady Dufferin Hospital, Durbanga, from 1886 to 1904, and she complained that she hadn't had a holiday in the whole time. A friend paid her passage to Dublin, where she commenced work at the Rotunda. Many areas of India were represented, and candidates came from different ethnic groups, including Eurasians, Hebrews, Anglo-Indians, Portuguese, Bengalis and a Burmese woman. Of course, it is clearly evident that Anglo-Indian and Eurasian women were the greatest beneficiaries of the scheme. Lydia Dufferin was adamant that her project would be non-denominational. And the majority of candidates whose application uh, we have were Christians. Nevertheless, some were Hindu uh, and one was Hindu, uh, Jewish. All the candidates had already studied at Indian medical schools as women were able to enter the diploma courses here in 1870s. The main centres of study were Lahore, Madras, Bombay, Bengal and Calcutta. So here we have uh, some detail. These are the exciting forms that you could see what lectures that they attended and how many they attended. As you can see, it's quite a lot of detail medicine, surgery, gynaecology, midwifery, paediatrics, and operative surgery. Yes. 
The academic performance of these medical women appears impressive. Uh, the following slides show a sample of the subjects that they'd studied. And table two further down reveals the numbers of lectures attended on key medical disciplines. So we'll just have a wee quick look at these slides. So as you can see, botany, as we talked of earlier, biology, chemistry and physics. Pharmacy, pharmacology, materia medica and therapeutics. Again, you can see the proportions of the people that studied these. And again, anatomy, physiology, histology, pathology, forensic medicine uh, and medical, medical jurisprudence. And as you can see, uh, almost 100% uh, studied all these. Uh, I think midwifery was the only one that was only at 89%, uh, but generally these had all been studied. So now this table shows us the number of applicants attending the various Indian medical colleges and their qualifications. Uh, so I'll just leave that up for a minute or two for you to, to have a little look at that. As you can see, Calcutta was the most popular. Now, if we look at the qualifications, the MB from Calcutta Medical College acquired by Rachel Cohen in 1897 was the highest level achieved, uh, followed uh, by the licentiate, the diploma, and finally, certificate qualifications. Uh, the women's experience varied from the newly qualified Rachel Cohen to the more experienced doctors, such as Dr. Ramsbottom, George, Permisu, Leach, and Brown, who had 14, 6, 7, 5, and 4 years, respectively, in responsible hospital posts behind them. Dr. Dabru was particularly well qualified, as she had been charged in the different female hospital, uh, Partan, oh, I can't pronounce that, I'm afraid, Partan Banji, uh, for one year. For three years before her application, she had worked as third lady doctor in the Lady Lyle Hospital, Agra, and lecturer in clinical medicine and surgery in the female medical school, Agra. Medically qualified women employed in the Dufferin Fund hospitals were categorised according to their educational level. Women registered under the Medical Acts of the United Kingdom and Ireland were in the first grade, as we would expect in colonial context, uh, and they were referred to as lady doctors. And it's interesting to note that five of these seven lady doctors on this grade, uh, listed as holding Indian appointments, had qualified in Ireland in the 1890s. In second grade were assistant surgeons and female medical practitioners. They possessed medical degrees but were not registered in the UK and these women were largely from India. The third grade of female assistants were again mostly from India uh, with a partial medical training as we've seen some only had certificates. Manisha Lal argues that British racism resulted in women being clustered in the medical assistant or certificate rank, unable to progress to senior positions. Dr Vaughan, as we mentioned before, pointed out that salaries did not rise for these women even after 15 years of service and there was no pension provision. In almost all the cases of the women that we've done some research on, it was the committee's demand that the lady doctors should have full English qualifications to be at the head of Dufferin hospitals. Therefore, these women uh, were 
attracted by the career opportunities that two years study in the United Kingdom offered. Of course, the UK qualification granted higher salaries, outfit and accommodation allowances, and the permission to set up in private practice alongside their hospital work. So, as we can see, interesting, Edinburgh, as you can see, is at the top of the list, already mentioned by Lawrence Gary earlier. This graph shows a marked preference for Edinburgh, followed by London and then Dublin. However, candidates did change their mind. Indeed, 10 women that we know of studied in Dublin. For example, Lukey Ghosh had elected to go to Edinburgh, but had changed her mind in preference for Dublin, where she contacted uh, Lady Dufferin uh, in some straits for money. It's just a little quotation shows you this sort of racist le- the level of racism here. Uh, Miss Marcia Bell, there was a, was a contact for the women in Dublin. Uh, she found uh, Lucky Ghosh, having decided to leave Edinburgh in Dublin in some straits for money. Miss Bell wrote on her behalf to Lady Dufferin, as uh, she claimed, she said she shrinked shrank from seeming importunate. Uh, Miss Bell then said, she's a very interesting specimen of a native Christian family. A different type, it appears to me, to the Hindu emancipated Babu class. My friends promise to befriend her if she requires it, as she has no compatriots over here, trusting you will forgive me for troubling you so often. The Babu was an English-educated Indian who worked in the Indian civil service, they were anglicised, but uh, the fund pointed out, but they were emphatically not English. Uh, Dr. Ghost was granted the funding for the Dublin course and spent six months in the Rotunda Hospital, gaining practical experience under Dr. Henry Jellett, King's Professor of Midwifery, who was, in her words, an ex- exceedingly clever surgeon, and I'm gaining very valuable experience learning his methods, which will be of great help to me when I return to work amongst the Purdo women of India. Since Indian hospitals associated with the fund were primarily lying-in hospitals, Dublin's Rotunda and Quim hospitals were the favoured destination for experience in obstetrics and gynaecology. As Edith Paul pointed out in a letter to Lady Dufferin, the hospital work here is very good. And the great advantage is that we're allowed access to all the hospitals, which was not so in London. I shall go into the residence at the Coombe Hospital for two months and will be able to take the LM diploma there in July, which is special for midwifery and gynaecology. It is interesting to note that there were 26 medical students in residence in the Coombe in 1911. Uh, These were from India, South Africa, New Zealand and Canada. Dublin had another advantage. Uh, It was cheaper than the more prestigious English colleges. Uh, There was also much more personal autonomy. In India, uh, medical students lived in a hostel with a lady warden. Uh, There were always ladies uh, who attended lectures with them. However, in Dublin, the women lived at various city centre addresses. For example, Letitia de Menzies wrote from a private hotel with 20 rooms on Harcourt Street, Dublin. And the census uh, return for the following year uh, lists several boarders who were students and civil servants. The, the addresses were often around the rotunda as well. No one seemed to go to the same address. There didn't seem to be a particular place set out for these students to come to. Uh, the UK rule was broken on several occasions. 
A number of women completed their medical education in Brussels, and indeed six had listed it as their first choice. So if anybody knows why Brussels was so attractive, I'd love to know why, but so many went to, to Brussels. Examples were two Anglo-Indian women, Lena Brown and Florence Leach, who both qualified in the Grant Medical College Bombay, and they both worked in different hospital Concours for four and five years respectively. Uh, they went to Dublin together in 1899, where following six months' attendance at the Rotonda Hospital and experience in the Meath, they passed, it, passed the licentiate of the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ireland. Uh, they both went on to Brussels then to sit for the MD and wrote to Lady Dufferin requesting funds for their passage home to India in 19, December 1900. Some women were initially refused funding, but they sailed for the UK regardless. Eventually, they were given finance necessary. One was the aforesaid Amelia Ramsbottom. A second was Gladys Carlton, who had been the 17-year-old and did not meet the residence age or experience criteria. And she was only 17 years of age. Uh, but nevertheless, a compromise was reached and on condition Miss Carlton pledged to work for the Funds Hospital for five years and on qualification, her scholarship would be awarded, and I found her name on the British Register, uh, so she obviously passed. Uh, these scholarships were for £100 and were dependent on satisfactory progress at the relevant medical school. Uh, they also fell short of total expenses incurred. The letters were dominated by last-minute pleas to Lady Dufferin for funds. Experience in the rotunda and exam fees cost £22. The Meath Hospital experience was £14 and the LRCP and S exams £42. A number of women engaged a tutor to ensure that they passed their courses to talk about this, speeding up the, the whole process. The cost of the long sea voyage via Gibraltar and overland uh, from Marseille, Paris or directly from Southampton and then to Dublin was met in some cases by the women themselves or their relatives. Uh, Gertrude Dabru, I'm not sure which one of these girls she is. This is her sister. She, the, this girl was from a family of 14, 14 daughters and two or three of them worked in the educational department in India and they paid for her, their sister's passage. So, uh, while the entreaties were expressed with extreme politeness, Lady Dufferin being ex addressed as Your Excellency, there was usually a reminder of the student service to the fund or an allusion to powerful friends. For example, Amelia Ramsbottom wrote that Lady Amtel, uh, the wife of the governor of Madras and Lady in waiting in, of, to Queen Mary, would be glad to hear that pecuniary assistance had been found possible for her, even though she had come to, on her own behalf, really, to Dublin. So, uh, the fund is not without its critics. The imperialistic and hierarchical aspects of the Dufferin Fund have received attention from historians. But there's no doubt in the discourse of the fund's administrators that British qualifications were seen as superior to those gained in India. However, the individual records of the applicants for scholarships show that the rules disqualifying women without British qualifications from senior positions were not always enforced and nine of the women had been in charge in several of the Dustburn hospitals for some years.
Research shows that many of these women return to India with the prized qualifications to forge successful careers. Uh, for example, Maud Sassaw returned from the U- University of Dublin with two degrees, uh, FRCSI, and the Diploma in Public Health. She became a highly respected physician in her own country, uh, which was Rangoon. Lord Dufferin's tenure in India was short, from 1884 to 88. However, as we have seen, Lady Harriet Dufferin remained deeply involved with the fund for many decades after her husband's tenure as Viceroy ended. And, uh, you know, the legacy of the fund, that there, there, by 1914, there was a women's medical service set up and a medical co- college was set up for Dub- in Delhi for women in 1915. Thank you for your...